Open up to Acts chapter 15, or excuse me, Acts chapter 18 this morning. Uh, we're going to be finishing up Acts chapter 18 and going into to chapter 19. And uh, part of the reason we're going to do the end of a chapter and the beginning of a chapter is these, these events uh, really uh, go together. They, they flow uh, and connect here with, with the narratives. We have to remember, uh, and sometimes we forget this, when Scripture was originally written, uh, they didn't put in numbers and chapters. Uh, they didn't put in verses. That came along a little later, and it's a great tool uh, to help us find things. Uh, but sometimes, on occasion, you'll find something where the thought continues across uh, a chapter break. So we're in Acts, Acts chapter 18, and we're starting in verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria uh, and with him, Priscilla and Aquila. At Sencrea, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, uh, he declined, but taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail for Ephesus. When he had landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and, went down, uh, and then went down to Antioch. Uh, after spending some time there, he departed and went uh, from one place to the next through the region of Galatia uh, and Phrygia, uh, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. And he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. And he had been instructed in the way of the Lord and been fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and, and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And when he had found some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily at the hall of Tyrannus. This he continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jew and Greek. Let's pray this morning. 
Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would just instruct us from your word, that you would speak to us. Your word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. And so, Lord, we ask that you would be in our midst. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be present, that you would give me the words to say, that these words would comfort where we need to be comforted, uh, correct and rebuke and challenge us where we need to be corrected and, and challenged, Lord. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would call people to yourself and that you would feed us with the truths of your word, eternal truths. We just praise your name again in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. If you've uh, followed the news uh, this week, uh, Turkey was in the news on Friday and then even some on Saturday. Uh, There was an attempted coup. Uh, in Turkey. Always kind of a, a scary thing when, when nations are, are revolting. But what's fascinating to me, and what I think we should remember, is we're in a passage of Scripture that deals with Turkey. The early church started in the nation of what is now modern-day Turkey. After, of course, it, it spread out from Jerusalem where, where it began and then up into Antioch. But some of the earliest churches were in the region of the world that we now call Turkey. And there are many unbelievers in Turkey today. There are many people that are secular. There are many people that follow Islam. There are a few, some, Christians. And most of those that claim to be Christian are not evangelical Christians. Turkey continues to be a needy country. There needs to be evangelism. There needs to be a discipling of Christians. Not too long ago, there was a young couple that visited our church, and they're looking at going back uh, to Turkey. They just popped in. They didn't do any kind of presentation. And the husband is from Turkey. They're hoping to go back to Turkey sometime this fall, maybe by the end of the year. It's a place of need. There are places of need throughout the world today. York County has needs for the gospel. We need ministry of the word of God to go on. We're in a passage of scripture where we see what ministry looks like. A a well-rounded ministry. A balanced ministry. A balanced ministry. The ministry of the church to bring the word of God should be to both grow disciples and reach the lost. If we were to go back to Turkey today, we would want to reach the lost, but also grow disciples. It's the same thing that we want to do here in our church. We want to reach outside the four walls and and share the gospel with people that have never heard about Jesus, have never put their saving trust in God and the Lord Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. But we also have a responsibility to those of us that are already believers. In other words, when you become a Christian, when you hear the gospel and you start coming to church, we don't just, you know, shake our hands and say, great, you're saved. This message is for those of you that aren't saved. We have a responsibility to see that every believer is fed the Word of God. Now, the great thing about the Word of God is there's always something in it for everybody. 
you can never have believed in Jesus Christ, and there's something in the Word of God for you to hear today, even during this sermon. You might have been a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ longer than I have been alive. And that's probably true for some of you. But there is always something in the Word of God for each and every one of us. So a well-rounded ministry will grow disciples and reach the lost. First, this morning, and we've broken this down into three points, and really what I want you to see is how the first section sets up the two incidences. First incidence would be with Apollos. Second incidence would be with these other 12 men. But this first section will set this up. We must strengthen disciples and reach the lost at the same time. So Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila, they're in Corinth, and then they leave to go to Ephesus. Look at verses 18, 19, and 20. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with them, Priscilla and Aquila at Sancria, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus and they left from there and he, and he left from there and went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. So. Uh, I wish I would have put this up on a map, but you'll just have to kind of remember uh, the last time you had ge- geography and kind of remember where Greece is. And remember how it juts out and it has all those weird like isthmuses and peninsulas and stuff. And, and that Corinth is in the lower part of, of Greece. And so they get on a boat and they sail across uh, the Aegean Sea And now they are on the western shore of what is today called Turkey. We might call it Asia Minor at that time. So they are on the west side of Turkey and they are in the town of Ephesus. And they have sailed there and Paul then goes into the synagogue and he is ministering and reasoning with the Jews. And they say, hey, stay longer. And what does Paul say? Look at verse 21. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. So Paul commits his missionary work to the Lord. This is like in in the book of James. The book of James instructs us that, that we should not say today I'll do this or tomorrow I'll do this. James says this. Uh, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears in a little time and then vanishes, vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Paul does this. Paul says, in effect, I hope that I, that I can get back around here. But you know what? It's, it's in the Lord's hands. It's the Lord's will. What is Paul in the great scope of things? You know, when you compare a human being to, to the size of the universe, we, we are like a grain of dust compared to the vastness that is out there. We are, we are but a mist in the in the short period of life that you have here on earth, compared to just how long human history is, we're just like this tiny mist that, that is there in the morning, but then by, by afternoon it has just gone away, or even by late morning it has just faded away. And so we are not to run our lives and think that we are somebody. 
I'm going to go here. I'm going to do this. I'm going to accomplish these things because I am someone of importance. Rather, we're to say, if it's the Lord's will, I'll go here. So even Paul in his missionary journey says this kind of humility in how he carries himself. Then we notice that he leaves Ephesus and he heads back to Caesarea. So he gets in a boat and he sails down through the Mediterranean. And Caesarea is a coastal city not far from where Jerusalem is, just north and to the west on the coast there. So he's down sort of where modern day Israel would be. And he landed at Caesarea, and then it says he went up and greeted the church, and then he went down to Antioch. So he heads north to Antioch, but in heading north, you go from high ground to low ground. So Acts says he heads down, and Antioch is kind of right in that corner if you're heading north. Then it says, after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phygria, strengthening all the disciples. This would be part of the the south side of modern-day Turkey, kind of right up through the middle. And so he cuts straight across the nation. All those places that were in the news this weekend is right where Paul is going and ministering. But what I want you to notice here is he is both preaching the gospel to the lost. When he is in Ephesus, he goes into the synagogue, he's reasoning with the Jews, he's going to people that have never heard the gospel. And then... When he's in Phrygia and Galatia, those regions that became known as the Galatians churches, where the letter to the Galatians is written, he's strengthening churches. Now he's still doing evangelism and, and preaching the gospel, but he's also going into the church and saying, let me build you up. Let me teach you more about Jesus. I want to make sure that you stay strong in your faith. I want to make sure... You're growing in the face. Let me explain more of the word of God to you. Let me do more preaching. This leads us then to our application of this first point. There are two things that we need to do in ministry. There are two things that we need to do. First, we need to strengthen believers. One of the jobs of the church is to see that believers regularly get the word of God. This is why I tell you to bring your Bibles to church. And this is why we read Scripture. And this is why as, as we're preaching through this, I'm reading the verses and quoting the verses because it is the Word of God that will strengthen you. It is the Word of God that will build you up. I don't have creative things to say. God has things that will feed you. One time in a sermon, I tried to tell a joke. It did not go very well. I told the joke, and everyone, you know, where you, you, you land the punchline, everyone looked at me like, oh, he's telling a joke. Then I made an offhanded quip about not giving up my day job, and, and this is why I don't tell jokes, and somehow that self-deprecating quip was funnier than the actual joke that I tried to tell. But the point of the sermon is, and and yes, I try to spruce it up and draw us in and keep us involved, but, but the point of the sermon is to feed the Word of God to you so that you might be strengthened. So that you don't say, wow, I heard Pastor Tim being really great today. But so that you walk out and say, I spent time in the Word of God. 
I heard the Word of God that comes not from the pastor, but from God who wrote it down through men who were inspired. God feeds the saints. The church has a responsibility then to see that believers are strengthened and we need to grow up in the faith. We need to be protected from bad doctrine. So the book of Ephesians says this, chapter 4, verses 11 through 14. This is God speaking. It says, He gave, God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, uh, which is another word for pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body that we may attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and a mature manhood to the measure of stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed by, by fro, to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and in deceitful schemes. We don't want you to get led astray. I won't embarrass you by asking you how many go to the gym here. But if you go to the gym, chances are you've either seen or you have a trainer. And what is the trainer's job? They're to see that you work out. They're to see that you do the right exercises. And and what is their goal? It's to build your body so you can have great bulging muscles, right? What is the goal of the church? It's to build the body of Christ. Why does does God give teachers and pastors to the church so that each one of us can be built up and then we're not just built up individually, but just like your body is, is knit together with multiple muscles, we are knit together in love and unity. And then, did you, ever, did you ever stand outside on a really strong day where it's windy and stormy and you, you have to like brace yourself from the waves? When you're strong in the Lord, you can brace yourself from false doctrine. You can brace yourself from all kinds of crazy ideas that are out there. And if you're a parent and you've ever taken your kids out on a windy day, you know you've got to hang on to them, right? And you worry about them. Because it's so easy to knock a little child over. This is why God wants us, each one of us, to grow up in the faith. And you cannot grow up in the faith if you're not in the Word of God. And if you're not gathering with God's people. And if you're not sitting under the authority of the Word where it's faithfully taught and preached. Because that's how God grows you as a Christian. Jesus said to Peter, before he commissioned him to ministry, three times, feed my sheep. The sheep are us, guys. We need to be fed. I need to be fed. That's a mission of the church. The second mission of the church, and this is the second part of the application here, is to preach the gospel to the lost. In other words, we can't just become a a group of people that we only talk to ourselves and we only build ourselves up and we miss the mission of God is to see that the Word of God is taken out from strong Christians 
and proclaimed to people and told to people and shared with people who have never even heard about Jesus. Or maybe they've heard about Jesus, but they have never put their trust in Him. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 5, As for you, be sober-minded, enduring suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. A balanced church must do both. It's kind of a shame that that in our day and age, it, it seems to be in many cases, churches either do one or the other really well. There are some churches that are really, really good at reaching the lost. They are really good, for better or for worse, at attracting people. And I don't always agree with the way some of, these, some of the things, some of the methods these churches use to get people in their doors. But at the same time, we can at least acknowledge they have a real heart for the lost. A heart that we need to have for the lost. But sometimes those churches... And some of you have shared some of those experiences with me. They drop the ball on discipleship. We need to be concerned with raising up disciples. The primary mission of a a Sunday morning service is we're here to worship God, to glorify God. And what does God want us to do? To feed His people and call the lost to salvation. We need to grow up in the faith. God doesn't say, just get saved and and stay where you are. I'm sure Jill and and Isaac are going to, in the coming weeks, be really anxious for the kids to grow up. Some of you remember what it's like when the kids are really tiny. And some of you moms know what it's like because you get no sleep. And you just go, man, I can't wait till those kids grow up. I can't wait till they're sleeping through the night. I can't wait till I don't have to change another poopy diaper. You want your kids to grow up. Of course, then when they grow up, you go, oh, I wish they were little. But in the same way, we want believers to grow up. But we want new babies, spiritual babies. And so sometimes we have to take the gospel out there to reach the lost. It's not either or. Either we're a church that reaches the lost or we're a church that disciples believers. It's both And that's our mission, guys. That's what God has called each one of us here. That's why he's left us here on the earth to do these things. I want to show you how this works as the passage unfolds. We have two incidences. So our second point this morning is feed Christians the word of God so that they might come to a full understanding. This is the raising disciples point. And I, I want to look at Apollos here. Look at verse 24. We have Apollos coming to Ephesus. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, which Alexandria is that city in Egypt. It was well known in the ancient world for having the Alexandrian library. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. So a couple of things I want you to notice here about Apollos. One, he is eloquent. What this means in the ancient world is he was trained in a school of some sort, most likely, and he was probably trained in some sort of classical rhetoric. Uh, you know, the, the, the book on rhetoric that Aristotle wrote. Some of those things would have been around in the ancient world. So, so he was probably a very captivating public speaker. 
He just, he just had a way with words. If you've, if you've ever listened to someone speak that has a way with words, you, you just know it. They, they're almost poetic. There's almost a, a cadence uh, to the way that they speak. They're not, they're not choppy and making awkward jokes like me. They're, they're really eloquent. And, and they don't just use big words, but they, 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 they use well-timed words. They can really turn a phrase. Uh, it was said the Queen of England would come and listen to Spurgeon speak. And, and she, would, she said to him one time on the way out the door, she said, I don't like what you say, but I never get tired of hearing how you say it. He was just eloquent. And, and she, she didn't like this gospel stuff, this message of sin and death on the cross and all these things, but just the way he spoke. He was a man of eloquence, and so was Apollos. But more importantly, it says he knew and, or he was competent in the Scriptures. So he knew and he understood the Scriptures. So, so his preaching was not just empty rhetoric. Uh, sometimes today, and, and I, I wouldn't recommend that you do this, but if you go on YouTube and you, you just watch some of the preachers that are out there, some of them are really great storytellers, but they, they don't know how to preach the Word of God. They, can't hand, they, they use verses out of context. They, they, they are eloquent. They pull the audience in. They tell these edge-of-your-seat stories and jokes that make the crowd laugh, and, and they, they pull you along. They're not competent in the Scriptures. What makes Apollos' preaching of the Word powerful is he can handle the Word of God. This is why as we preach, and I keep saying this, but this is why we keep saying, look at what the Word says. Follow me with the verse. I want to not just be competent in the Scriptures, but I want to demonstrate to you that these things that we're talking about is what the Word actually says. Not to, to puff myself and be like, well, Pastor Tim, he's so competent in the Scriptures. But to say, this is what the Bible says. That's my mission for being here. Not to be eloquent, although it's great when you can be eloquent, but to be competent in the Scriptures. To rightly divide the word of truth. That, that doesn't mean we cut up the word when Scripture speaks that way. It, it, it's this idea of, of finding the right path. That, that you're teaching Scripture in the right way. We are explaining it in a way that is true and accurate. Apollos was competent in the Scriptures. It says also, it says... Um, it says that he instructed, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and then verse 25, and being fervent in spirit. I think this language here, fervent in spirit, I think the S should probably be capitalized because I think it's probably a reference uh, to the Holy Spirit. It's the same phrase that, that Paul uses in Romans 12, 11. He says, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. I don't think it means just he was an exciting, passionate guy. I think it means he had a passion that came from the Holy Spirit. That, that the Holy Spirit was at work through what he was saying. He, he was convicted. He believed these things. He was truly saved. And the Holy Spirit was in his ministry. There is a sort of human zeal that we can find in speaking and preaching. Pastor, the speaker gets worked up, can hype things, can do this wonderful job. 
And it's not always bad. But what has real power is the gospel. The gospel is the power of God. And it needs to come with a fervency of the Holy Spirit. That there is a weightiness to what we are saying. That that the speaker and the preacher truly believes these things and has been transformed by the grace of God. And it is not just standing here as a hypocrite saying, you need to believe in Jesus, but as one who has believed in Jesus and walked with Jesus and is manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. And Apollos had that kind of fervency. And then it says he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. What he was saying was true. Notice that it says he taught accurately concerning the things concerning Jesus. Apollos knew and had faith in Jesus. I think it's significant that it doesn't just say he taught accurately concerning the Christ. But he taught accurately concerning Jesus. That he knew that Jesus was the Christ. It wasn't just that Apollos was very good in the Old Testament scriptures and was going around and preaching and saying, this is what the Christ will do. This is what he will be like when he comes. It's that Apollos was going around just like Paul and saying, Jesus is the Messiah. And let me tell you about the life and ministry of Jesus. As it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, or chapter 12, verse 3, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. I conclude that Apollos was a genuine believer. He taught accurately concerning the things of Jesus. We don't entirely know how he heard all this. It says he was instructed in the way of the Lord. Uh, Someone came down and shared with him the scriptures, uh, shared with him the Old Testament, the fulfillment. Somehow he knew about John and John's baptism. Perhaps he had he had gone up during the ministry of John. John talked a lot about Jesus. Uh, I didn't compile all the quotes in the Gospels, but just one from the Gospel of John. John the Baptist says, as Jesus is coming, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. A few verses later, he says, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him, on Jesus. And I myself did not know him, but he sent me to baptize with water and said to me, he whom you see the spirit descend and remain. This is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and borne witness that this is the son of God. So Apollos could know even just from the ministry of John that Jesus was a lamb that had to die on the cross. Apollos could know even from the ministry of John or someone who shared this with him that Jesus is greater than John, that Jesus is eternal, that he is the son of God. Apollos knew all of these things. But Apollos needed to hear a little bit more. His knowledge was incomplete. It says he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained the way to him more accurately. Uh, it's, it said in verse 20, excuse me, the end of verse 25, though he knew only the baptism of John. There was, there was all this accuracy in what he was saying about Jesus, and yet he just hadn't heard yet about the coming of the Holy Spirit. He had the Holy Spirit in him, 
but he hadn't heard about all that had happened at Pentecost. So he is preaching the gospel, the death of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and there's just a few details, if you will, that need to happen on the end so that he can understand all that God has done. But he's a real believer, and he is preaching accurately. And one of the fascinating things is that Priscilla and Aquila will then further explain this to Apollos, but look at how they do it. It says in verse 26, And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So it says just a few verses earlier, he accurately spoke about Jesus, the things concerning Jesus. And then it uses the same word and says they explained it to him more accurately. In other words, everything that Apollos had been saying was completely and entirely true. There was no false doctrine. There was no bad teaching. He just needed to hear a little more about what had happened after Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. And the fact that Priscilla and Aquila can take him aside privately says there was no error that they had to confront publicly in the synagogue. I hope that if I ever preach error from the pulpit, like really grave error, somebody will stand up and correct me. Now, now don't be a nitpicker and, and, and stand up for every little... But, but if I say something like, you know, God is not a trinity, uh, or Jesus isn't the eternal Son of God, by all means, you should not tolerate that. You should publicly deal with that. This wasn't how it was. They could take him aside. That, that's a lesson for us, I think, about what discipleship should look like. Discipleship involves encouraging the saint. It, it involves instructing them. But, but it, it, it need not be confrontational, particularly if they're a young baby Christian. When your kids are young and they make a mistake, you don't just yell at them. You take them aside. You, you correct them gently. You say, you know... You did a good job here when you cleaned the floor. But, you know, you missed some spots. You, you didn't get in the corners. Let me teach you how to, how to do it more accurately. And you teach your kids how to drive. I haven't been there yet. I imagine by the time I'm done, I will have a whole lot less hair on my head. But when you teach your kids how to drive, you, you take them on the road. And you encourage them. You don't want them to get frustrated. You don't want them to get stressed out. They're driving. You Maybe give them some instruction. You warn them. You say, now over here the road is going to get kind of bumpy, so, so keep a firm hand. Or you say, now when you go around the corner, you've got you to watch the shoulders as well. You teach them where to look, how to look ahead. You teach them when they pull out. You know, on a busy road, you've got to look left, right, and then left again. But you give them instruction. And you don't embarrass them publicly when they don't do something right. The same is true in the church, brothers and sisters. We might have believers here now or who will come in at some point, and they don't know as much about Scripture as you do. They say something, and, and it's accurate so far as, as they say it, but they could be a little clearer or phrase it a little differently. Don't embarrass them. Don't. Don't call them out. Take them aside. Encourage them. Hey, you're doing a great job. Say nice things to them before you just go and try to correct them. 
Because notice how then they send Apollos on in verse 27. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. In other words, they didn't, they didn't harp on Apollos. Well, you know, Apollos, you, you have been a Christian for a while, but it's only really recently that you, you finally heard about Jesus' baptism of the Spirit. You're, you're just not ready. Stick around for three years in Ephesus so we can train you. No, they encourage him. Of course, he was already competent in the Scripture, so I assume he, he took to the, the instruction quite naturally and said, oh, yeah, these things are in the Word of God. I see it. There's so many lessons here for us for how to build disciples. Disciples need encouragement. Disciples need to be built up. Third, this morning, share the Word of God with unbelievers so that they might come to saving faith. I want you to notice the next event. And we'll have to brush through this just a little faster. But notice how Paul finds some disciples who, like Apollos, had heard only of John's baptism. Verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, Do you, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And then Paul explains John and Jesus to them. Look at verse 4. But when Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when they had laid hands on, when he, Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. You see, Apollos did believe in the Lord Jesus. This is where the difference is. So the similarity is they had both only heard of John's baptism. But there is a world of difference in whom they were putting their trust in. Apollos knew the scriptures, had trusted in Jesus, and was accurately explaining the things concerning Jesus. These guys had not believed in Jesus. Because John has to, or excuse me, Paul has to tell them. John came not for his own baptism, but to teach you to have faith in Jesus. And when they heard that, they believed in Jesus, and the sign of their belief was their baptism. They got baptized. It says they were baptized into the, in the name of the Lord Jesus. But they had not been believers at that point. They thought they were repentant. Maybe they even felt an outwardly sorrow for their sins. Maybe they even knew, hey, we're we're sinners and, and John came and Israel is going to get restored and God is going to keep his promises. But something was missing. And that something was saving faith. That's a lesson to you and I. You can grow up in the church. You can go through a whole bunch of rituals. You can know what sin is. You can know that you're a sinner. You can know that you need to repent of your sins. You can even have a sort of formal outward sorrow. Yeah, that that doesn't make God happy. But if you have never, in a personal way, 
put faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have never believed upon him and said, save me from my sins, your death has paid for them. I want to receive forgiveness. If you have never prayed something like that, or you have never personally put that trust in a real way in Jesus, you're not saved. And you need Jesus. You can know a lot of things about Jesus and still not know Jesus. Do you trust him? Do you recognize that it is only through him that you can be saved? Trust is this idea, faith, belief, all of these words mean the same concept. It's this idea of seeing the burden of your sins, the immense guilt of it, and crying out to him as the only way to be saved. It's, it's like throwing yourself at the mercy of someone else. Saying, I need you. Forgive me of my sins. I can't do this. Save me. That is the only way to be saved. We live in a culture, in a world, where you will encounter people that do not know the Lord Jesus They've never heard of him, never heard of God, the God of the Bible. When I was in college, I I met a man who was a new Christian, and he had been a skinhead for a while. And we were in our Old Testament class, and I remember him saying one time when we were studying outside of class, he said to me, Tim, this is great. You're learning the theology of all these passages We were studying Noah and Genesis. He said, this is great. He said, you've got to understand something. I'm hearing these stories for the first time. There are unbelievers out there today. They don't know. They never heard anything. We need to take the gospel to them. There are people out there today that assume that because they've heard about Jesus, Because they maybe even go to church regularly. Maybe they've even been baptized in a church. Maybe even through some sort of infant baptism or something. They assume, I am a believer. And you say to them, do you know Jesus died on the cross? Oh yes, absolutely. Do you know Jesus died on the rose again from the dead? Oh yes, absolutely. Do you have a personal faith in him? What? We need to be sure that when we share the gospel with those types of people, that we don't just accept their head nod. Yeah, I've heard about Jesus. Okay, good. Well, I'll go to someone else now. But you ask them, do you have a personal faith? Maybe you ask them, if you were to die tonight, do you know for sure if you'd go to heaven or not? It's interesting here that it says in verse 1, there he found some disciples. And I take that to mean that through the outward appearances, everybody assumed that these people were disciples. And Paul gets talking to them and finds out they don't have a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The scriptures say, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. 
John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John 5.24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Let me ask you this this morning. Do you have a personal saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you received the forgiveness of sins? If you were to die tonight, do you have confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ that you would go to heaven? Our confidence is never in ourselves. Our confidence is never, well, I had faith. I can have faith that there are Pokemons out there. And if you've been following the Pokemon app stuff, you know what I'm talking about. But Pokemon apps don't save anybody. It's nice to have faith, I guess, in Pokemons if you play the game. Faith in Christ saves because of the one whom you're directing your faith to. You're saying, Jesus has done it all. Save me. Trust him. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, if there are any today hearing your word that have not received the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray now, even in the quietness of their own hearts, that they would receive you, that they would confess their sins before you, and that they would believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again, and they would invite you into their life, putting faith and trust in you, Lord Jesus. For those of us, Lord, who are disciples, that faith needs to be strengthened. Maybe we even need to be reminded that our faith is not in vain. Maybe we've been struggling with something and and wondering, why do I continue to believe in Jesus? Life is so hard. And we need to be built up and strengthened and reminded that, that those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will not be put to shame, the Scriptures say. We praise you for this. Bless this ministry of your word in our midst today. Amen. We're going to sing a closing song this morning.